Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 555. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning, but let us just start by reading the first eight verses together. Beloved saints, this is God's word. And it is yours as a gift and deserves your attention and your hearing. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are undone under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was none to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, better than both, is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business." Since the reading of God's word, uh, please join me in prayer that the Lord would minister to us through it. Our great God of truth, our merciful Savior, you have told us to offer up our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, which is holy and acceptable to you, our spiritual service of worship. And yet we confess that we often, usually, struggle to do so. We are so entangled in the affairs and the concerns of this life and this world that we, we have our minds set on the things below rather than the things above. And so we struggle to follow you as we know we should. Renew our minds, we pray. Transform them through your word and teach us to think as you think, to believe as you believe, and to love what you love. Do this as we listen to and meditate upon your word, we ask. Be with us now by your Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Loneliness is a big problem, and we all know it's there. The Beatles even sang about it. But few of us know what to do about it, how to address it. And that's, I think, because many of us misunderstand what causes loneliness. The tendency is to think that it's a lack of proximity to people. And so when people feel lonely, what do they do? They surround themselves by people. They go to parties and clubs, social events, and they're surrounded by a crowd. They feel more alone than ever. Others simply think it's a matter of shared interest. And so what do they do? They join fan clubs, uh, social movements. They think that a shared cause will give them a shared identity. 
and a sense of belonging. But there, they too feel alone, lost in the crowd. Then there are those who think that if they can just be famous, or at least uh, if they can just be awesome at something, then they will be appreciated, maybe even adored, and then they will no longer be alone. And yet what happens? They succeed, and no one seems to care, or worse, they become famous. They have an entourage. They have their hangers-on who are really just using the famous for their own purposes and they discover what many have warned before them that there is no lonelier place than fame. Ecclesiastes 4 deals with this issue, this issue of loneliness and its counterpart, community. Because community is really what we all are truly longing for. It's the only antidote to terminal loneliness. But knowing what the solution is and knowing how to find it are two radically different things. And so we need this morning to address two questions head on. We need to ask why are relationships so important to us and we need to ask where is community, true relationships, truly found. My hope, as we look at this passage, would be to defend this point. It's this. As humans, made in the image of a relational God, we need community. But it can truly only be found through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because we are made in the image of a God who is relational, we are relational and we need relationships. But true relationships, meaningful relationships, can only truly be found through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And, and to, to, to see that this morning, I want to consider three things. First, we want to see the curse of loneliness and where it comes from. Second, we want to see the blessings of community and with that uh, blessing of community is the blessing of wisdom. And then finally, we want to see how community can only be truly found uh, by being reconciled to God. And so those are the, the three things we want to see this morning. Uh, the first three verses uh, address that, that subject of oppression. And if we're honest with ourselves, oppression is a bit of a tricky subject. It's uh, no one likes oppression. Well, no one likes to admit they like oppression, I hope. Uh, but it's not something we can all readily define. And even fewer can speak on how to address oppression. Uh, so what is it? What is oppression? Uh, we know that oppression is, uh, uh, has to do with greed. It has to do with deceit. Uh, it, it seeks to selfishly benefit from the hard work, the labors of others. We know that it is usually perpetrated on a weak minority, those who cannot defend themselves. And, and finally, and this is essential, oppression always includes a denial of justice. 
And so if we wanted to awkwardly maybe uh, attempt to put it into a, a, a shorter definition, it would be something like this. A working definition of oppression might be uh, selfishly seeking to gain through the work of others by denying justice to those who cannot defend themselves. Because of that, oppression is incredibly isolating. When you cannot defend yourself and no one comes to your aid, what do you feel? Alone. Solomon goes so far to say that the oppressed envy the dead who no longer have to face oppression. Uh, They even think, verse 3, that it would have been better to never have been born, to never see the evils of this world. And when it comes to oppression, there are two dangerous temptations. The first is obvious. It's uh, the temptation to oppress the weak, uh, the poor. There are those who are not satisfied with their own wealth, and they look at those who are weak and cannot defend themselves and think they could increase their wealth through afflicting the weak and the poor. And that's a great evil. In fact, it is one of the things God hates the most. You cannot read the scriptures without seeing his anger towards those who would afflict and oppress the poor. But there's a second and a more subtle temptation when it comes to oppression, and that's on the other side. It's to think that we can remove all oppression in this world. There is a savior mentality that thinks that we could, if we could just abolish all personal ownership, we could overcome oppression. Now, it should be obvious, I hope, that sinful man will not rid the world of oppression. Only God can do that. But more than this, what do such systems do? Let's just stop and think what they typically do. They start with a declaration by the majority to benefit from the minority, unjustly taking their property and calling it their own. What have they done in their attempt to remove oppression? They've just changed who's oppressed. They're substituting one form of oppression with a weekly, uh, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, an equally wicked alternative. And so verses 4 through 18 take an interesting turn because the first three verses talk about the isolation of the oppressed it's easy to think that, that those who do the, uh, the oppressing are not so lonely, that if you could just no longer be oppressed, you might not be alone anymore. But that's not the reality. When envy, the quest to possess what others have, drives your labor, you end up chasing after wind. And so through a quite startling image in verse 5 uh, of devouring one's own hand, Solomon says that such a quest, if if your quest is just to improve your wealth, your power, your standing, you will always end up destroying yourself, like someone who's hungry simply eats their own hand. He says sometimes more is not better. Verse 6, it's better to have a little bit of peace than a whole lot of strife. And those who build their lives through greed fill their lives with strife. They find that when they have accumulated all their wealth, 
that they have no one to share it with. And that's the greatest loneliness there is. And we are not made to be alone. We can't just live life. We have to share it with others. We cannot exist in the absence of relationships, in the absence of community. It will destroy us. And that's really the problem with envy, with greed. Envy turns people against each other. Envy is competition when there should be cooperation. It's strife when there should be service. It's self where there should be sacrifice. When, when gain, when your own gain is your obsession, you don't care who you hurt or whom you trample. Envy destroys relationships. But here's the dirty secret. Envy is only obvious a fraction of the time. We can all spot it in someone who's obsessed with power or money or fame. But how many other masks does envy wear? It can desire other things other than money, someone's circumstances, someone's family, someone's job. But it can wear more subtle masks as well. It can be a quest for recognition, always wanting to be seen as as the one who has the answers, the solutions. What drives insecurity? Have you ever noticed whom insecure people are always talking about? Themselves. Because they're obsessed with what other people think about them. And what drives that? Is it not a quest to be seen as capable, likable, desirable? What is that but pride? What is that but envy? What about people-pleasing? Is that not driven by envy, a need to be liked by others? What about self-loathing? It's nothing more than the fruit of believing that you are special and that you shouldn't have to suffer from from the same weaknesses. You shouldn't have to work as hard and you shouldn't have to endure as many failures as others. Self-loathing is not born of humility. Self-loathing comes from failing to live up to your own overinflated sense of self. Even many philanthropists are secretly driven by envy. That could be a quest for legacy, wanting to be remembered Or it could be a quest for adventure. How many people have sacrificed their own families because they want to be in the center of the action, taking care of other people? In other words, no one 
not one of us is safe from the wiles of envy. It is a sneaky serpent that slithers its way into every one of our hearts. And it doesn't always announce its presence and say, hey, guess who I am? But it always destroys relationships. Now we don't want to stop there. These first eight verses are sobering. Uh, They're a window into how easily our relationships are destroyed and broken and we're isolated. Whether you are rich or poor, there is no guarantee that you can avoid envy and the devastation it brings. And what's worse is that we all know it's in there and that we battle it. So what hope is there? Well, that's what the second half of our passage is about. It looks at relationships positively. So let's read verses 9 through 12 together. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Verse 9, two are better than one. Now, he's not talking about cookies, though two cookies are better than one. Uh, He's talking about relationships. As God said in the beginning, it is not good for a man to be alone. And the reason is obvious. We are made in the image of a God who is relational. We are made in the image of a God who delights in community. We are made in the image of a triune God. Always three, yet always one. Always eternally and perfectly existing in beautiful, perfect community. How could we, who are made in His image, not reflect that reality? That's why when Adam and Eve were created, they weren't just created for each other but invited to live in God's garden, to have community not just with each other, but with God himself, so that they might know him and might enjoy him. That's why the scariest words in the Bible are God declaring, depart from me, for I never knew you. And that's why when God grants salvation, we aren't just saved, but we are saved into a community, into a family. Now, here's where we want to be careful. The temptation is to think that when the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone, that what it's saying is it's not good for someone to remain unmarried. That's not what is being said here. Jesus was the perfect human and yet never married in this world. 1 Corinthians 7 God makes it clear that it's better for some not to marry. That those who are single are uniquely freed up to serve in ways that other people can't. The church needs 
single people, and the church needs to rid itself of the idolatry of marriage. Not all are called to marriage, and not all married couples are called to have children, but we are all, every single one of us, called to relationships. We are called to be involved with each other in meaningful ways. No one is called to go through life alone. But we cannot define what those relationships are any narrower than God does in his word. Our passage lists out some different kinds of relationships for us. Verse 10 talks about friendships. If one falls, his fellow, his friend, can lift him up. Friends, neighbors are essential in our lives. We cannot go it alone. We need help and we need support. No man is an island. No woman is an island. Verse 12 describes alliances. Working together to guard against threats and dangers. And this is what we saw in verses 1 through 3, that when no one is there to guard somebody, they become alone and oppressed. It's easy to oppress people when they are isolated with no support. So God says you need to work together to protect each other from dangers and threats. And yes, verse 11 describes marriage. I want to be super clear here. Your spouse is the only person you should be lying down to stay warm with. There's a sweetness to having someone to do that with, to walk through life's journeys and trials with. But it's not the only kind of relationship God gives us. Each of these relationships are God's gifts. The people in your life, your parents, your friends, your children, your spouse, your church family, all of these are God's gifts to you from your Heavenly Father. But they are only beneficial if you let them in. If you let them know you and you learn to listen to them. And that's what verses 13 through 16 are about. Let me read that. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Who, knew, no, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from his prison to the throne, and, through, uh, sorry, and though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, and there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely also this is vanity." and striving after wind. Solomon tells of two kings, one who was old, rich, and unwilling to heed any of his counselors, but there was another who was to succeed him who was born poor. Because he was wise, the people followed him rather than their foolish king. But the tragedy comes in verse 16 when he looks down the road and says, The kings to come will 
probably not learn their lesson and not follow him in that way. Now, this seems to be an obvious reference to uh, Solomon's father, David, and King Saul. Saul was rich and powerful and yet completely unwilling to listen to his counselors. And so though he was rich and powerful, he was all alone, filled with envy and strife. David was poor, but wise. And the hearts of the nation turned to follow him. And the temptation is to think that that to have people love us, we need money and power, influence. But this Bible is telling us, better is poverty joined with wisdom than riches in the hands of a fool. Wisdom teaches us that, that we need the right relationships. It teaches us that we need to listen to and to value others. I know the temptation. We all have the temptation to surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. These are not your friends. They are using you to soothe their own conscience. There's an unspoken contract. If I never tell you you're wrong, you can never tell me I'm wrong. If that is your relationship, you are a tool being used for their own ends. A true friend will correct you and call you to faith and obedience. The question is, will you be willing to listen to them when they do? Now what Solomon didn't know when he wrote this was that there would be another king born in Israel whom this passage would perfectly describe. There was a king born, poor as poor could be. But this king Jesus was not just king of Israel, he, w- he is the king of heaven. And yet, do you remember what he famously said? Foxes have their holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so he wandered this earth as a vagabond. He he had no home to call his own. And yet he possessed a wisdom that was otherworldly. And so though he had no money and no power, the hearts of the people were drawn to him. They saw in him a true friend, gracious and forgiving, and yet willing to speak hard words of correction if needed. And isn't that the kind of friend we struggle to be? We're we're good at correcting without grace, or we avoid hard conversations altogether. What we struggle to do is to marry godly wisdom with gentle grace and to correct with patience and love and kindness. More important than than that Jesus came or how he came is why Jesus came. He came to reconcile. He came to restore relationships. First and foremost, that's our relationship with God. There is no peace with God so long as our sin remains undealt with because God can have nothing to do with sin. He is holy and He is good and He is just. 
And he cannot allow sin into his presence. He cannot allow us to draw near as long as we are clothed in our wickedness, our sin. And so Jesus came to reconcile us to God by enduring all the consequences for our sin. And in order to do that, he had to be willing to surrender all relationships. So all those friendships that he made while on this earth, what happened on the night he was betrayed? Who stood with him? Not one. But it gets worse. Because on the cross, he had to be abandoned even by his own father. Because sin destroys relationships. If he is going to deal with our sin and endure all that it deserves, he had to have all relationships stripped from him. He had to be truly alone. What could drive someone to willingly endure that for others? Love alone can explain that sacrifice. When you question, when your life is hard and you question whether or not God loves you, look at what Jesus did for you on the cross and what he endured and ask yourself, what could drive him to do that other than love? He told us, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. And then he says, I call you friends. And then he also said, a friend doesn't always know what he's doing. But I love you. And so through that death, he rescued us. He reconciled us. He made peace with God possible. More than that, because he was willing to be brought so low, the Bible tells us that he was exalted far above all others. It was his willingness to suffer that brought him high. Not his, not his oppression of the poor and helpless, but his service of the poor and helpless that resulted in his exaltations. Philippians 2 says it was because he emptied himself and became a servant, even a servant in death on the cross. It's because of that that he was given the name which is above every name, the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that he is Lord, that he is King. He didn't win that, obtain that through greed and self-service. It was his reward for selflessness and sacrifice. It was because he served others and not himself that he was exalted. But he didn't just make reconciliation and peace with God possible. Something the Bible points out time and time again is that in purchasing peace with him, With God, he also made peace with each other possible. When each of us is granted peace with God, we are made members of the community of the redeemed, the household of faith. We are... We are freed then from from greed and striving because we have all we truly need. In Jesus Christ, all of our, our needs are supplied and so we can look at each other not as tools to be used to gain something we need, but 
as friends that we can love and serve. And so we as the church, the people of God, the body of Christ, have been given an amazing gift. We've been given each other. To guard each other against oppression. To lift each other up when we're knocked down. And if you're called to marriage, to marry someone in the faith, someone who who knows what it is to share in that gift of salvation. It's not just a sin to marry outside the faith. It's a total disregard for the gift of grace. It's, It's built upon a foundation that's opposed to God and His truth. It's not relationship building. That's relationship destroying. Look around you. These are your people. This is your community. This is the family of God. And it's ours because we belong to God. He is what we all have in common. He is our hope and our strength. And that's what verse 12 is all about. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. When you have relationships, you and another, and God is the third cord, when they're built around God, they are stronger than any other relationship because their strength is found in who God is and the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when you have that, you don't look at each other for what they can give you, but as those who bear the image of your Savior. Beloved, let us strive to walk in a manner worthy of such a gift. That same passage that told us that Jesus emptied himself for our sakes sakes, makes this uh, admonition to us. Have this mind in yourselves which was in Jesus Christ. That's no different than what Ecclesiastes 4 says, is it? We're called to rid ourselves of envy and greed. We're called to to serve with no concern for what we'll receive in return. You can only serve in that way when you are truly satisfied in Jesus Christ and content in what you have in Him. And that reality is made so beautifully visible for us in the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul tells us the cup of blessing that we bless is is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And we get that. We the, the bread and the wine they picture for us the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They remind us of his of his death on the cross and our need for him and what he's done for us. But then Paul goes on. And he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He says, if you belong to Jesus, you are one. Our problem isn't that we need to unite ourselves. Our, our problem is we need to better act in accord 
with what Jesus has already declared the reality is. The Lord's Supper is not just a picture of the life of Jesus lived for us, but a picture of the life we are called to live with each other. A life of love, of sacrifice, and of service. It's a reminder that you have not just been saved, but that you have been saved into a community and you are bound together in Jesus Christ. You are not alone. You belong to one another. And he himself is our third strand. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this beautiful reminder of the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. And please bow with me in prayer. Almighty Lord, loving Savior, we marvel that you know no envy, no greed, no covetousness. Such freedom is foreign to us. We are far too consumed by what we think we need and far too little by what you have already blessed us with. Help us to focus on what we have in Jesus. And out of that rich abundance, help us to sacrificially love and to serve others. Help us to be generous with our time, our money, our resources. Help us to love each other in the bond of Christ, confident that the three-strand cord is not easily broken. Amen.